This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. We've got on the line Tim Jenkin, who is the author of Inside Out uh, and also um, part of the production team for a new movie called Escape from Pretoria. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us on High FM. Uh, pleasure, Benji. Good to be able to talk to you. <laughs> So, so for a start, Tim, uh, when you were imprisoned in Pretoria Central, uh, they gave you 12 years uh, as as a prison sentence, which is is quite a harsh sentence. But you, you, what, what were you actually imprisoned for? Because it, it didn't, doesn't seem by by today's standards to be anything particularly serious. Well, <laughs> that's correct. By today's standards, it's it's quite ridiculous, really. It was uh, producing some leaflets and distributing them. You know, today, if you want to uh, um, get across an idea, you simply stand at the traffic light and hand them out. Most people wind up their window (laughs) and refuse what you're giving them. But in those days, you had to employ all kinds of um, weird methods to distribute it because, you know, we were doing this in the name of of the anti-apartheid movement, uh, including the ANC, and uh, you couldn't simply stand on a street corner and hand out leaflets because you would have got arrested immediately. So we had to employ some rather unique methods. I mean, we did uh, use the postal system as, as a kind of base method. So we had a, an underground uh, printing shop and we would duplicate these leaflets and put them in envelopes and then uh, post them. You know, you couldn't dump a hundred or a thousand uh, letters into one letterbox they'd obviously be found so we spent like the whole night posting four or five letters in um, boxes all around Cape Town but the other method that we used was called a leaflet bomb now don't be frightened by the word bomb these were just very small harmless explosive devices that uh, made a loud bang and then they threw leaflets up into the air and um, obviously that would uh, draw the attention of surrounding crowds and um, the leaflets would fly up into the air and then rain down and people would pick them up. So that was one method. Another one we used was having a similar device but exploding from the top of a building, uh, a banner that would unfurl down the front of a building and release uh, you know, a shower of leaflets down into the street below. So that's what we were doing. Mm. So you've got 12 years for basically being like an aggressive Twitter activist. uh, Yes, yes, something like that. You know, it seems ridiculous these days. But, you know, I think the um, it was not so much that uh, you were doing that, you know. It was that you were doing it in the name of a banned organization. So that was really... (laughs) What, what got you involved with the ANC and anti-apartheid activism to begin with? Well, it's a very long story, you know. Um, um, I grew up as a so-called normal white South African, and, uh, you know, I defended my country, and I didn't. I was completely naive about things. Um, and so I didn't even know what apartheid was, you know, because whatever... Was I was surrounded with, like everyone else, it just was the norm, you know, that was the normal thing. Uh, but it's only when I went abroad after school, I went to on a kind of gap year, and I started to find out about my own country, and 
I was kind of quite shocked to find out <laughs> what this apartheid thing was because people were questioning me and I was watching films that I couldn't see back home and I was reading books that were all banned. So I got to find out and then I came back to Cape Town and went to UCT to do a degree course and made an effort to go and look at townships and um, find out what apartheid was and Somehow it just affected me and I felt, well, I can't just get my degree and then just settle down and get a job and not do anything about it. I was just moved and I needed to do something. I can't say why that affected me that way and other people went through the same motions and it didn't really affect them, but it did. And um, a friend and I then traveled abroad really just to find out more about what the struggle was about and about the ANC and we went to London and connected with the ANC there and really just to find out, you know, and we were there for about nine months, a year or something and uh, eventually they said, well, if you're going back to South Africa, would you like to do something? And um, we agreed and they said, yes, you'll be doing propaganda work, you spread the literature around the place and we'll give you some training about how to do that and how to communicate secretly using codes and secret inks and all that sounded very exciting and um, how to um, get money in to carry out these activities and how to make these leaflet bombs and so on and how to uh, live in the underground to secure our safety so it was quite a comprehensive training that they gave us. And then we came back and set up shop and started producing. Where, at what point was this, uh, at what year? This, this was um, from about the time of uh, the Soweto uprising. So it was 75, okay. 6, somewhere around there. And through until 1978 when they arrested us. Yeah, so... It, was about it really two. was uh, quite at the height of... Uh, it was really the, the peak year. Well, the turning point, really, I guess, was Soweto Uprising. And then, um, you know, that went on for years and years. And many people died and got shot in the townships. And the world sat up and paid attention to what was going on and the anti-apartheid struggles all over the world and the international boycotts of South Africa, sports boycotts and the products and things. So it was during that period, you know. 101.9 Chai FM, I'm Benji Shulman, talking today to Tim Jenkin, anti-apartheid activist and author of the book Inside Out. Now, Tim, uh, you, you spent a couple of years uh, distributing leaflets, getting involved with the information side uh, of of the struggle, uh, but eventually the, the security police uh, caught up with you. Did, did you ever find out how they, they managed to find out what you were doing? No, we never really found out. You know, I guess it was just uh, um, very careful police work over many years. So every inc incident, or say for every posting and every leaflet bomb that went off, they would send their forensic guys in. And, um, you know, in a way, you kind of uh, draw a map around yourself. So if you imagine we're spreading these leaflet bombs essentially around Cape Town. We did a few in Johannesburg as well. But um, uh, you 
if you imagine you've got a map and every time something happens you put in a little drawing pin <laughs> and then over a period of time you kind of uh, locate where things are happening and uh, then perhaps they look through their files you know and um, when we were at university we weren't all, we were a bit outspoken about things and perhaps uh, they started a file on us and maybe they noticed us in the UK because we were a bit naive and stupid and went to protest meetings and and so maybe we were already on their books you know and then perhaps they start following people maybe narrow it down to 10 activists and they follow them and uh, in that way they they narrow it down to maybe a handful of people and eventually get onto you or suspect you and then follow you and then see you doing something and they just piece it together, you know. They were very meticulous, and they had a lot of resources, and um, they eventually traced it to us, I guess. Hmm. And but we'll never really know exactly. They don't let on how they how they got onto us. So, now uh, the, the 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 arrest and the the subsequent interrogation and the transports are are, are, are all absolutely uh, quite like horrendous. Uh, things to read, uh, and and I would encourage people to read the book to to get um, to, to get that side of it because it really didn't sound uh, very pleasant at all. But escapes at the time were actually fairly rare uh, in 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 a part of South Africa. There were some examples, but but you kind of went into in when you, when you eventually got arrested, you went in with the idea that you wanted to escape uh, almost as a as a part of your work. Can, can you explain to us your thought process around that? Well, yes, I think uh, we thought about escape from the very moment that they, they arrested us. Even while they were interrogating us, uh, both of us <laughs> were looking for opportunities. And in fact, Stephen, my um, compatriot, he did escape while he was being interrogated. He complained about a, a stomach pain and they took him to the doctor. And he noticed an open window and he dived out. And uh, unfortunately, he... The distance to the ground was quite far, and he, he hurt his knee as he fell, as it is in the film. And um, and uh, they pulled their revolvers on him, you know, and he he couldn't get away in time. So uh, while we were awaiting trial at Polsmoor Prison in Cape Town, we managed to get hold of a copy of the famous escape book called Papillon, which is the story of a, a French prisoner in the 1930s, who was held on Devil's Island, which is off the coast of French Guiana, somewhere in, near the Amazon. And this guy was a serial escaper. He spent all his time trying to escape. But the book itself, we read it as an escape manual, so he provides everything you need to know about how to conduct an escape, mainly from the psychological point of view, that if you're going to escape... Uh, you have to devote 100% of your attention to it. You can't just do it as a part-time activity, that you can't rely on lucky breaks. You have to plan the escape from beginning to end. And you uh, need to divide, uh, divide your escape into various phases. So the first phase is obviously sort of intelligence, trying to find the weaknesses in the system. The next stage is really planning your escape, working your way out. 
or the actual escape, and then once you're outside the prison, that's not the end of the escape. You've got to have an escape plan, how to get away from from the prison. And the lesson there was that if you don't have someone to take you away or a helicopter waiting outside, you've got to have money, and you've got to get away from the prison as far as you can, as quickly as you can. You can't just get out and go to a pub or go and see your girlfriend or something like that. You've got to be serious about it and move away as quickly as, as you can. So th- those were all valuable lessons that we learnt. And, and so we smuggled money and while we were still awaiting trial prisoners. And we uh, bottled that uh, money using cigar tubes and hid it inside our bodies. And it, the money was in there for three months. Hard to believe, but we arrived at Pretoria Prison and we had this money in it with us, which later was to prove absolutely essential to getting away from the prison. So today to uh, Tim Jenkin, uh, he is an anti-apartheid activist. And if you want to ask him any questions, you can uh, SMS us on three four five one nine or Telegram us on oh six one eight. 895-1019. Now, Tim, in, in terms of the escape, you know, you, you did actually choose a rather novel method. There were no jumping out of windows or tunneling or anything like that. You actually mm. decided in the end, without giving away too much, to, to, to unlock your way out of a prison. Now, that's uh, extraordinary. How did you come up with that idea? Well, we looked at all the options, you know, and um, um, there's, there was no chance of tunneling out of this prison because... Essentially, our cells were on the first floor of the building, so you can't tunnel through hardened concrete, thick walls. And if you did, where are you going to go? Down to the first floor, <laughs> down to the ground floor. And the, uh, the prison yard itself, even if we could have tunneled, um, this was a prison inside a giant prison complex. So it was Pretoria prison inside Pretoria Central prison complex so you tunnel and you come out of the prison you just end up in another prison so that wasn't very helpful but anyway there was no opportunity of digging because um, where do you hide all the the rubble you know uh, and it's wide open there's guards armed guards overlooking the yard and there were just never the opportunities so it was clear to us that to to get out of our cells and out of the prison we would have to open doors and in the beginning, we had no plan. It just seemed a logical thing. The first step was to get out of our cells, and each cell had two doors, an inner, an inner barred grill and an outer solid metal door. So uh, that was the first challenge, was really how to just open the first grill. So we had no plan. It was just to try and see if we could manage to get out of ourselves and I made a first key after about a week or two in that prison uh, we worked in a, a prison a workshop a carpentry workshop uh, where we had access to tools well carpentry tools of course and um, a lot of wood so we found some bits of hardwood in the workshop and managed to fashion a key out of wood to open the store um, people often ask me, well, how did you know the shape of the key? And in fact, it, it wasn't terribly difficult. Uh, I mean, we didn't uh, measure 
a key because we didn't never had access to their keys. But the lock itself provides uh, a lot of the measurements of a key. You know, if you think about it, uh, if you look at a lock, um, the keyhole is sort of the shape of the key, and the round part of the keyhole is the shaft, where the shaft of the key fits in. So you've got all the measurements there, the depth of the key and the, and the width of the shaft. You just simply measure it. So I just had a piece of wood and just kept filing until it fitted. <laughs> and the crucial part is the, um, you know, the shape of the key. These are those sort of old-fashioned lever locks, so it's a kind of square key. Um, often used like in the intern, but indoors and in, inside a house, not those sort of Yale keys on the outside. And um, the the size of the uh, what we call the bit, in other words, the the part that lifts the levers, um, you could measure the width of that really by just taking an impression of the inside of the lock. And uh, these were huge locks, so you could see the scrape marks on the inside of the lock and it was easy to measure that and now that's giving you sort of the measurements of the key the height of the key you can just measure it from the scrape and then the rest was really hmm, yeah just measuring the cuts you know and and we just did that by eye by looking at their keys and you could uh, you could just estimate and the estimation was correct <laughs> literally yeah. from scratch now I, mm. I want to ask you something Minor, but but I thought this, I found quite humorous in your book. Everyone that was locked up in the prison were, were all atheists. But according to the uh, regulations of the time, you had to choose a religion, so to speak, um, yes. so that you could have access to uh, a, a minister or something. And you nearly yeah. ended up choosing your religion, so to speak, as being Jewish. Um, could you tell us why? Well, um, yeah, there were... Um, you had to choose a religion because you were supposed to have some kind of religious uh, person come and visit you and and uh, satisfy your religious needs and the and the guys were divided into I think three camps so there were a number of Jewish prisoners the most prominent of those is uh, Dennis Goldberg which who we've all heard of he died recently um, and there were David Rabkin and um, Raymond Sutner. I think those were the three who were Jewish. And the Jewish uh, were in the best position because they actually liked the guy who came to visit him. And the Jewish community also um, provided food uh, parcels quite regularly. And they would hand them over to the prison authorities who would then inspect them, see there are no keys or guns <laughs> in the parcel. And uh, the guys would share those with us. So... I had to choose which uh, group I was going to belong to. So the other one was Church of England, and the other, the final one was uh, Roman Catholic. And the guys told me that um, their ministers or priests or whatever were very boring, and and there were no food parcels or anything like that. So I had to choose which group. So I told them I was Jewish, but they didn't buy that story for some reason. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so that's what happened. And then they said, "No, you're not Jewish. So which group do you want?" And then I said, "No. Well, in that case, I'm just going to be uh, uh, non-religious." And they couldn't understand that, you know. 
So I think I was the first one who was not placed in the group. So that's how it went. <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you about Dennis Goldberg because, of course, he did die recently, and there's been a lot of, uh, you know, uh, people writing about his life. But but one of the areas which I feel like they have skipped over has been his contribution to your escape. He, he he was quite an important part of of uh, of the kind of escape committee that was helping to organize. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dennis was considered the sort of leader of the prisoners. Um, so he was like our interface between the prisoners and the, the prison authorities. And he was respected by them and he had a good relationship with them. And um, overall, we had a good relationship with the prison staff. You know, we didn't cause them any problems or trouble. And they didn't cause us. In fact, that's the thing they told us the very first day we arrived at the prison. We said They said, we have an agreement. If you don't cause any problems, we won't cause any problems. And that's how it worked. And, you know, we showed them respect and they showed us respect. And uh, Dennis, as I say, was the guy who liaised with them. And he was also respected by the prisoners, so we, we, we knew he was the most senior of the prisoners. He went into prison with four life sentences. He was part of the Ravonia trial with Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisuli and others. So he was, as they put it in the film, he was royalty. <laughs> so Dennis played a role. He wanted to escape because he had nothing to lose with four life sentences. If he got an extra 15 years on top of that, it didn't make any difference. Um, he was with us all the way through. It was just towards the end when things got very tough and we realized there was no way we could get everyone out, that uh, maximum of three people. And um, he kind of wouldn't say he lost faith in the group, but he sort of had cold feet about it. He just felt right at the end. Uh, they kept changing the security arrangements, and they were busy building um, a uh, watchtower outside of the prison, a kind of a gate, special gate. And um, then he just felt, no, he doesn't really want to go, doesn't feel the chances are good, but he's willing to help us. And he did help us on the day of the escape. We needed him to call the uh, guard um, up to the section where he could detain him for a little while while we made our way out of the prison, <coughs> which is what he did. <laughs> now, mm. you, the, the book has actually been around for quite a while. You published it after you escaped uh, in the 80s, and then it was sort of republished again yeah. later on. <coughs> yes. What was the process like from converting the book into the film? Were you, and how involved were you in that? Well, this film that's currently just come out, uh, Escape from Pretoria, which was released in March this year overseas, um, is not the first attempt. You know, I wrote the book originally in 1987, and the book was banned in South Africa, of course. But the book itself was a cut-down version of the version that you read, which was the second edition called Inside Out. So writing in 1987, some of the guys were still in prison, and it was still apartheid era, so we 
didn't really want to provide the full details of the escape and also we couldn't mention names of people because that would have got them into trouble. So when the book came out, a whole number of film companies approached us about making the film and a film was nearly, was just two weeks away from being made in 1988 or 1989, something like that. Um, but the producers didn't really, weren't very interested in the politics. They wanted to just make an escape movie with some vague reference to South Africa, and we couldn't allow that to happen because from our side uh, it was a political story and we needed it. It was still, apartheid was still in power and we needed to make a strong point about how you can defeat this this Goliath, so a couple of Davids can defeat this Goliath, and um, it's not invincible. We need to get that point across. So it failed. But ever since then, every five years, I've been signing another contract, one after the other, back-to-back contracts. And even the current producers, this is their second attempt at it. So uh, 15 years ago, I signed a contract with them, and that failed. And every time it's really just a question of not being able to raise the money. You know, these films are very expensive. You have to raise millions, and uh, that was always the problem. But eventually they did it, and this is the outcome <laughs> many, many years later. Um, a film is produced. Tim, you, you, you made the film. Uh, you got Daniel Radcliffe on, which uh, was uh, they, pretty good that they, they managed to get on. How did the... Someone like that react to a very kind of South African story. Well, he he loved the story, you know. I think they, <coughs> excuse me, they gave him the book to read, and he he um, was enamoured with the story, and he felt it's strange that this story hasn't been told yet on film. And I think he was very excited, you know. I I wasn't the person doing this. You know, the producers found him and uh, gave him the script to read and the book. And he really wanted to play the part. Um, I think he wanted to get away from the, the little Harry Potter wizard image <laughs> and take on some sort of hardline movies and um, change his image, you know. And uh, I think he pulled it off successfully. Um, he's the same age as I was at the time, so that was perfect. Yeah. And and I um, mean you you really it's been released uh, in March, which uh, kind of um, from a, a a bit of world attention perspective, I guess, has been a, a probably a bit tough. Uh, but I mean, uh, what has the reception been? And and uh, are South Africans able to watch the film yet? Well, uh, it's going to be released in uh, South Africa next month. Um, it's. Uh, Unfortunately, it's almost the last place where it's being released, and I can't really explain how this works, but when you produce a film, you you don't just release it globally, you sell it to dis- distributors, distribution agents, and the world is divided up into zones. So um, it started out in the UK, and then the U- United States will launch together on the 6th of March, and then slowly it's being rolled out throughout the world. I mean, um, more and more countries it's being shown. Um, and it's been very successful so far. Um, apparently it's number one film in the Far East for some reason, um, in uh, Korea and Vietnam and these places. 
And um, the producer was telling me the other day that as far as he can make out, it's within the top ten of films currently released in the world at the moment, so it's doing very well indeed. I mean, it's a relatively low-budget film, so it's not a mega kind of Hollywood thing in the billions. So it's doing well for a small film like that, and I think people like the story, as you said in the beginning, you... You, you, you numbered with the <laughs> escape genre, and I think a lot of people are. And this is a different kind of escape. You know, most escapes involve criminals, so you're never quite sure if you want to take up sides with the the prisoners escaping or with the prison authorities who want to recapture them. Um, so you're kind of rooting for the prisoners, and the bad guys are the the prison warders because you know they are the guys holding the you know freedom fighters in prison so you side with the prisoners and and they make it and they get away and they make their points and it's a very clean escape and um, it's even though it's my story it's a kind of ingenious escape that we had to escape and open ten doors in this prison and it was a very nerve-wracking experience. And it was a kind of technical escape, rather than just digging tunnels or bribing warders. Um, it was, you know, we, we had so many keys. We had more keys than they did in the prison. We had complete uh, reign over that prison. We could go anywhere. We could do anything. We could open any lockers. We could get any tools we wanted. We had complete control over the whole place. So it's it's a kind of unique escape. You don't often get that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Tim, thank you so much for joining uh, us on the show today. It's been a real, real pleasure. And uh, just uh, good luck with the film. And uh, and I know I, I don't even have time to, to talk to you about uh, the amazing work that you're doing in, in uh, other parts of South Africa today, but I would encourage people just to Google Tim, uh, check out his Ashoka page to look at the work that he's doing now, also to get the book, but just to say uh, good luck with the film, and I hope everything goes really, really well. Thank you, Benji. Pleasure to talk to you.